and welcome to First Aid Then Paul, your life raft in a sea of turmoil that is Great Britain. Hello, Paul. Well, it, it is it is glorious to not be immersed in a general election again. Uh, that was rather draining, I think, for all of us. Mm, particularly you. Well, particularly our listeners, I think. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> particularly our listeners who carried on listening. Well done. Pat, pat yourself on the back right now. And the last time we met, we discussed whether what we had, were witnessing was the rise and fall of Theresa May. Mm. And we talked about how unrealistic that was, yet it was a possibility, and it all came down to whether or not people turned out to vote yes. and the sort of numbers that polls such as YouGov were predicting. Mm-hmm. Well, it turns out they did. And we have ended up with a hung parliament. Now, one thing I was going to bring up last week, but I think it's even more fitting to discuss it today, is uh, the change in Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn's spirit animals. Well, no. So, at the very beginning of the election, when asked, people said Theresa May was a wise owl watching over people and making sure they're safe. Jeremy Corbyn, yes. at this stage of the campaign, was a snuffling anteater. Aww. <laughs> So by the end of the election, this had changed. Mm. And Theresa May was now considered a snake. Yeah, but that's going from a wise owl to a snake is... I mean, people weren't being asked to be, you know, imaginative and come up with anything original, but it tells you a lot about how they perceived Theresa May. Sure, fair enough. And Jeremy Corbyn was now a friendly Labrador. Wow. Yeah. Hey, that's quite a transformation. Yeah. That's... So that, I think, encapsulates the huge turnaround in public opinion over the course of that six-week campaign. Yeah. I don't think there's an, a British animal that is despised enough to to kind of be Theresa May at the moment. I don't think there's an animal we're like, ugh, maybe, uh, maybe a seagull. But that's only if you really live in, on the coast do you despise. I mean, seagulls are pretty... Yeah. Maybe she's a rat. That's the obvious choice. But well, she, doesn't, she doesn't act like a rat. I mean, people haven't been Rats asked... are actually a lot nicer. People haven't. I, I haven't heard anyone ask this since the result. Where mm. I think it would have changed again, and now I don't know what Theresa May would be. Some kind of a w- wounded seagull, yeah, perhaps something mm. something startled and um, and without much influence. I, so both leaders returned to Parliament yesterday, and the the reversal in fortunes was was dramatic. Um, Jeremy Corbyn was applauded by the Labour Party when he came in, mm. which is incredible considering only a few weeks before <laughs> most of his party were desperately distancing themselves from him and telling the electorate that they would never support him being Prime Minister. Wow. Um, but yes, before the election, one party was uh, led by a leader that the party had no confidence in and was desperate to remove but didn't know how to. (laughs) And the other party was led by a leader who was unassailable and everyone considered incredibly strong, even though, actually, they're still pretty crap. Mm. And we're still led by two parties (laughs) where that's the situation. They've just magically reversed. Yeah. It's it's pretty incredible. So the, the results in this hung parliament were 318 for the Conservatives and 262 for Labour. Mm. So hung Parliament, the magic number you need is 326. So this, so the, it comes down to the Conservatives, basically, to form a government, as, as I'm sure everyone is seeing unfold on their television as we speak. Now, there is some talk that Labour should try and form a government. Mm. Now... If they, if they add to their 262, the seats from the SNP, the Liberals, the Greens, Plaid Cymru 
and the DUP. And the DUP. And the DUP. And the Jokot. You get 324, still too short of oh. the bare minimum you need. Oh, I see. Yes. So Labour really can't form a you know solid government. Um, yes. So it's pretty much down to the Conservatives. The Conservatives could form a coalition with any of the parties from DUP size up. They could form a coalition with DP, they could form it with the Lib Dems, they could form it with the SNP, they could form it with Labour if they wanted to. Um, How many seats do the Lib Dems have now? Twelve. <laughs> Still up from seven? Up from nine. Up from nine. Where they were. Oh yes, because they were, they were nine because they'd won two. They'd won, uh, they, and... no, they went down to eight in the last general election. They managed oh, yes. to gain one. Um, and there was a lot of churn with the Lib Dem results. Yes, you know, yeah. They, they gained of, yeah. some, they lost some. Yeah. Yeah. Mind you, that was the same with the Conservatives as well. The Conservatives managed to gain lots in Scotland. Pretty much if they hadn't made those gains in Scotland, mm. Theresa May wouldn't be able to form a uh, government. So mm. Scotland brought us a Conservative government. If you want to look at it like that. Oh, it's very fun to look at it like that. <laughs> it is very strange to look at it like that. But uh, weren't the Scottish Conservatives thinking of breaking off and being another party at some point? Yeah, I mean, they... <laughs> Well, the thing is with the, the Scottish Conservatives is they're sort of realising that under Ruth Davidson, they're a lot more popular than mm. English Conservatives. And so they need to now carefully appraise their future, you know, work out, is it better to stay aligned with the English Conservatives and perhaps one day get Ruth Davidson into the leadership of the Conservative Party and perhaps mm. uh, r- rule nationwide? Or should they... Uh, foster their own best interests and keep themselves as separate as possible. So expect a lot of Ruth Davidson throwing a weight around to try and trying to uh, secure special deals okay. uh, for the for the for Scotland and so so she can say that uh, Scottish conservatism is paying off. This has been seen as a huge victory for Labour managing to uh, secure a hung parliament from uh, where they began, began so low in the polls, as we discussed last week, they they did run a remarkably good campaign considering where they'd begun. They still lost for the third time running. Mm. And they're still far, far away from forming the next government. However, they have got all the momentum. And certainly the Tories think that if they went into another general election, they'd lose mm. to him. Uh, in fact, if there had been just a bit more tactical voting, uh, we'd, we'd now have Jeremy Corbyn in number 10. Right. Uh, I mean, for instance, uh, Richmond Park, which mm. was the seat between Sarah Olney and Zach Goldsmith that the Lib Dems won uh, in last December in a by-election. Zach Goldsmith won that by 45 votes. Wow. And there were 5,000-odd people in that constituency that voted oh Labour. God. If just some of those 5,000 had voted Lib Dem um, instead of backing a horse that couldn't win there... yeah that seat would have been secured for the Lib Dems. That would have been one less Tory. And there are plenty of other seats similar. Um, so you've got St. Yeah. Ives, um, similar case for the uh, Lib Dem Tory constituency. And you've got the reverse. You've got uh, Hastings, Amber Rudd's seat, which was almost lost to Labour, where there was still a sizable representation there for the Liberal Democrats. So if they'd voted tactically for Labour, that would have been another one lost. So uh, it just <laughs> makes me want proportional representation. <laughs> it's so weird. I mean, I, I, it's 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 unbalanced, but it does kind of even out in its unbalanced because it, it's unbalanced to different parties in different places. Yeah. But still, what a nonsense! What a nonsense we live in! Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that that it can all hinge on such a small number of votes. Because yeah. if you total up all the votes in these different constituencies, I mean, there was one Scottish constituency uh, between the SNP and the Lib Dems where the Lib Dems missed out by two votes. No. 
What? Yeah, it was that close. So you total up all these marginal seats and the amount of votes difference, and it's such a small number of people who could could potentially completely change the way this country is governed. Wow. So what are the implications of this hung parliament? What message can we take from mm-hmm. the way people have decided to form our parliament? Well, uh, what most people are now fighting over is what this means for Brexit. The chaos this has caused for the Conservatives have, have given lots of Remain MPs the impetus to claim that this is this is a sign that hard Brexit uh, should be abandoned and we should you know, remain in the single market or something like that. Certainly it looks like it's, like it's going to be very difficult for Theresa May to pass any kind of Brexit legislation. I mean, it's going to be really tricky to do anything, really, in regards to Brexit. Mm. As we She'll need forward. an awful lot of consensus. For, she'll need Labour to to come on, on, on board on these yeah. votes. But uh, hard Brexiters have hit back on and pointed out that um, the vote share for hard Brexit, looking at the manifestos, is around 85%, compared to about 13% of the country voted for parties that supported a soft Brexit. And uh, John McDonnell, the shadow chancellor, Labour, uh, hit the airwaves to reconfirm that Labour did campaign on a manifesto commitment for a hard Brexit mm-hmm. um, and leaving the single market and the customs union. So it's, it's very it's once again, we've ended up with a vote where because so many people fudged it during the ele- actual election and refused to fully say what they were campaigning for we've we've now got things up in the air again because of course so many Labour and Conservative MPs believe in a soft Brexit and they probably whispered to their constituents well that's what I'll be pushing for but the problem is both their party's manifestos committed them to a hard Brexit yes so Brexit wise we've just got uh, a bit of a bit of chaos basically uh what might be easy is to say that this uh, huge surge for Labour shows that people were sick of austerity. Yes. And certainly that's what John McDonnell was saying that the result indicated. But is that even true? Because the Tories have pretty much abandoned austerity uh, in in their manifesto. They, they, they'd pushed back the date for clearing off the deficit way back, uh, certainly not the next Parliament. In fact, actually, to be to be pedantic about it, we haven't even had austerity. No. Uh, it's a bit weird, isn't it? Because yeah. we haven't, because <laughs> we haven't eliminated the deficit. Yes, uh, austerity it, kicks in once you've gotten rid of the deficit and you start it, paying down your debt. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's austerity in terms of the cuts, but yeah. not austerity in terms of the, the intended result <laughs> no. of reducing your your deficit, which, uh, which is kind of what was predicted by people who were anti-austerity. Sure, pointing out cutting doesn't actually work because you reduce overall revenue in your country. You'll you'll make well, the profitability of your country decline yeah, when you start removing services. The thing with, the thing with economics, as I, I think I've, I, I've stated before, I firmly believe that the key thing for economics is is looking like you know what you're doing. <laughs> yes. uh, like you, I'm pretty sure you can make both economic models work as long as you convince everyone that it's going to work. <laughs> yeah, Peter Pan needs to believe he can fly, and then he'll fly. Right. Yes. Um, but the the problem we're into now is is that we've blinked and we've caused so much mischief with Brexit uh, that the current plan to keep cutting just isn't isn't going to work. Mm. And pretty much both parties had accepted that. Labour want to borrow more, so perhaps the Conservatives are going to have to move in that direction. But the problem is, is that neither party, and I, I don't think actually any of the parties, uh, factors into their manifesto the huge cuts or enormous extra borrowing that would be necessary with Brexit. Mm. So it's predicted that the leaving the customs union could cost us 
25 billion a year mm. and leaving the single market would cost us uh, up to 36 billion a year Oof. i mean those two pretty much blows everyone's pledges out of the water in terms of spending yeah i'm not sure people would be willing to lend us that those kind of figures on top of the kind of additional spending that the parties would like to spend yeah does does it give us a clear direction on austerity it's kind of more more of a fudge really you can read into it what you want uh, especially because those who are pro austerity would say neither party was promising austerity hmm. so how is this a vote against austerity it was never pledged yeah so we don't really have much of a mandate at all in our parliament. Uh, it's just going to be a bit of a, a free-for-all. So will there be another general election to sort this out? Well, the Tories, as we've mentioned, don't want one. They're absolutely terrified that Jeremy Corbyn is going to sweep to power. Sure. Uh, certainly Labour are up for it. They're, <laughs> they, they've got all the momentum. They've got all the energy. Corbyn mm-hmm. is now calm and confident and very chipper indeed. <laughs> Um, but if Labour do want one, they're going to need it soon. Because once Brexit starts kicking in, their divisions, their coalition that came mm. together is going to start falling apart. Yeah. So, yes, the Conservatives aren't interested in another general election anytime soon. They want to limp on as long as possible. Um, in fact, even some high profile uh, Brexiteers, passionate Brexiteers, have said off the record, apparently, that they would be willing to sacrifice Brexit in order to keep out Jeremy Corbyn. They're, they're so fearful <laughs> of, of him taking over the country. Um, <laughs> read into that what you will. Oh my God. So the Conservatives, to, to keep the show on the road, are seeking alliance with the DUP. A rather nasty bunch that are now suddenly on everyone's radar. I mean, it, it's amazing. I, I've never heard of them. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm pretty, I'm pretty clueless about Northern Ireland in general. I have some awareness of the history of Northern Ireland, but I just had, I wasn't aware of the DUP yeah. as a, as a, as a political entity. It just kind of escaped my, my awareness. And then I find out they've almost got as many seats as the Lib Dems. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, oh, I don't have the figure in front of me, unfortunately, but if you look at their overall percentage, I think it's something like, Oh, it's 300,000. I think I heard. Well, they're, they're, sorry, votes. Yeah. So their percentage is not point. I don't know, seven or something like that, or less than mm-hmm. that. Uh, whereas the Lib Dems uh, percentage was 7.8, I believe, something like that. So miles apart in terms of uh, the amount of people that voted for them. However... Thanks again, first past the post. Yeah, brilliant system. Uh, so there's been a lot of outcry and pushback against the idea of the Conservatives uh, forming a coalition with them. Uh, I believe lots of Labour MPs have been protesting against it. Perhaps worth saying that Gordon Brown tried to form a coalition with them after the 2010 election. So, really, glass houses. <laughs> and to be to be fair to the Conservatives, um, the the electorate has created this electoral map, and simply on terms of the fact that the DUP have some loathsome uh, views, uh, that shouldn't stop a coalition. A coalition is about finding things that you can agree on and, and agree a platform to move forward. Mm. What makes this distasteful is it violates the Good Friday Agreement that um, the government should be impartial in dealing with the parties of Northern Ireland Mm. as a way of maintaining the peace. Right. And they can't be impartial if they are dependent upon the DUP for securing important votes. If they're dependent on one of the parties of Northern Ireland in their coalition. So the DUP are uh, a 
Protestant uh, Unionist Party. Yes. So the same way that it's sort of the Conservatives and Labour define themselves by their opposition to each other, mm. the DUP sort of defines itself by its opposition opposition to, to Sinn, Sinn Féin. Féin. Right. Yeah. Okay. And so they passionately want Northern Ireland to remain within the Union, whereas Sinn Féin would like uh, Northern Ireland to become a part of a united Ireland. Uh, and and so during the Troubles has have allegedly um, supported uh, some of the more ex- well, extreme... It's only one thing to do, is go in a coalition with both of them. <laughs> well, yes, if only. But uh, Sinn Féin uh, refused to take their seats in Parliament. In really? Yeah. Well, that's because they weren't invited. If you invited them to the coalition, they probably would have... <laughs> yeah, they should have. Invited. How weird of that would have been? <laughs> coalition with mortal enemies. <laughs> well, they are required to go into power-sharing agreements in Northern Ireland. Exactly. So they are used to working together, um, only uh, over the sort of stresses on the Northern Ireland Assembly over uh, recent years, it's all fallen apart, which only adds to the irresponsibility of uh, the Conservative government to, yes. to rely on them at this stage, just when that relationship um, between Sinn Féin and the DUP needed mending. Yes. This is now exaggerating it. Uh, but actually, I think the biggest problem with this moving forward is that um, the DUP is a regional party. It's not like the Liberal Democrats. When the Conservatives went into coalition with the Liberal Democrats, you could look across all of the, well, most of the constituencies in the country and you'll find some Lib Dems there. Hmm. I mean, yeah, okay, there won't be many <laughs> in an awful lot of seats, but there'll be some. So the Lib Dems, when they secured policies to represent their electorate, there'll be general policies, you know, mm. like securing um, free school lunches or the pupil premium or raising the lowest level of tax. These are things which you could say benefit the United Kingdom. The deals that the DUP will be looking for are basically huge cash injections for Northern Ireland. Mm. And as we discussed, things money is going to get very tight over over the next few years. And really, are there, is the rest of the United Kingdom going to put up with one region bit getting paid off for a small mm. number of votes? I, I, we discussed the Scottish Conservatives. Uh, they outnumber the DUP, and they're feeling quite rebellious. Mm. I mean, feasibly, if they consider themselves a separate party, they could be demanding huge cash injections for Scotland. Yeah. And then, you know, what's to stop the, the, the Conservatives in Cornwall? Break it off, call themselves Cornish conservatives, and demanding a huge cash injection there. Like, I don't think it's kind of sustainable if this this deal becomes widely known. Mm. Some people have said that the DUP attitude towards Brexit is going to encourage a, a soft Brexit, but actually, the DUP have always been in favour of leaving the customs union. They just don't want a hard border with Ireland. So that makes zero sense. <laughs> yeah i was gonna say <laughs> but they don't seem to care um i think like a lot of hard brexiteers they're sort of willing to overlook the facts that what they want is impossible or perhaps they are they are aware that well they just it sounds like they all want to be smugglers yes i was just about to say they they essentially want to be able to import things and then avoid tariffs and and move them into the next territory I mean, smuggling it, it, mean, is it, it, it will be smuggling yeah it will turn everyone who transports stuff between the republic of ireland and northern ireland into a smuggler when up until now because of the customs union that they, no. that's been a, even though the prices have been different and people have traveled to get things cheaper it's a very common thing and it's been it's gone in both directions depending on on the economic climbs um mm-hmm. it used to be people from the republic of ireland going to to 
to Northern Ireland to get stuff, and then it swapped around, and I think it swapped around again. <laughs> yeah. Now, now they'll just be doing it criminally, and then we'll have to spend money, pull it like soft, having soft borders where you'll have random customs inspectors yeah. who'll just drive up and and stop and do like what's it inspections on the on the roadside. Yeah, and if if you and think that costs... isn't open to corruption, like <laughs> <blimey>. <laughs> So yeah, it's it's. I don't think actually the DUP will have much influence um, on the Brexit deal because they haven't got enough MPs, and there's going to be enough rebellions on the Conservative backbenches anyway. So the Conservatives are going to have to look to Labour to get secure votes for whatever Brexit deal there mm-hmm. is. So I don't think the DUP are really going to have that much influence, and and the DUP's position is is a nonsense. So I think they'll just be bought off in other ways, but I don't see it lasting. Uh, maybe I'll be proven wrong. They're, what they're looking for is a confidence and supply arrangement where they will um, support key financial bills and the Queen's speech, but that's it. Uh, so they'll get that through, and then and then the real chaos begins from that moment on, anyway. So if that falls apart, how do we get ourselves out of this? Well, there is another party of a similar size to the DUP who have a history of forming coalitions. <laughs> would they, would they uh, be coloured yellow? <laughs> they certainly are. Uh-huh. Yes, well, the Lib Dems did campaign, however, on a key pledge that they would not do any deal or have a coalition yes. because they assumed they would not be in a position to form one. <laughs> <laughs> so... If they did go back on this, this would be a betrayal on a scale way bigger than tuition fees, uh, which yes. wasn't even in, I don't believe it was even in their manifesto, the, the pledge on tuition fees right. that they broke. So this, I mean, this they put... Are you sure? I seem to remember it was, but maybe I... It, um, I swear they, they, they campaigned for... They campaigned like a couple of years before. Oh, okay. And then when they drew up their manifesto... If it was included, it was like way at the back, like in small print. Like it, they didn't consider it a key thing. Yeah. And then they when they went into negotiations, come. it didn't sort of occur to them that it was a big thing. And then all these photographs surfaced later, supporting the pledge like two years earlier. Right. And it, it totally devastated them. Whereas this, you know, Tim, there's enough footage of Tim Farron on the campaign trail saying he will not form a coalition, which <laughs> makes it pretty unlikely that they would, especially. I mean, the price for them to break that pledge would have to be enormous because they'd be devastated from that moment. Forward. Right. Uh, basically, they would have to be saying there'd be no more Lib Dems. Mm. We'll form a coalition and then the party just can't exist after this because this is a betrayal <laughs> of epic proportions. <laughs> we um, literally just throw the yellow rosette in the bin and just go for whatever the one is for the, for the party they're doing a coalition with. They're like, oh yeah, gone. Yeah. But the price might be worth it. I mean, if the price was proportional representation. That's true. I mean, that would be worth destroying your party yeah. for. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, That's going down in the blaze of glory. Yeah. That's like a... I would say, I would say that Lib Dem should form a coalition if they can secure two things. Proportional representation and Ken Clark as Prime Minister. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I mean, you, it was a long shot with proportional <laughs> representation. Um Hey, I, I, I'm having, pre- having, asking the most the, the Tories to take their most left wing like parliamentary member, but he is a Tory. <laughs> he is still one of them, and the Lib Dems could say we won't even take a cabinet position. Yeah, it's true. We will simply trust one of you to govern your party properly, 
And he's he's the most experienced of anyone in the Conservative mm-hmm. ranks. He's been Chancellor before. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's not a crazy suggestion. <laughs> it's just one that would make them spit blood. <laughs> um, but there's, I don't think, even if they did secure a deal, say, say they did, say they managed to get uh, the Conservative leadership to agree to such an audacious move, there's no way the actual Conservative backbenchers would vote for proportional representation. No. And there's no way the Labour Party would vote for proportional representation. Oh, Both main parties no. would rather see the country burn than um, than deliver that kind of reform. Yes. Would would... You, you'd be asking both of them to lose yeah. dozens, of, if not like a hundred seats each. Yeah. I mean, interestingly, if you turn the recent vote share into seats... Labour are about the same under proportional nice. as they are in vote share. So they're at that sort of magic, <laughs> um, yeah, that magic threshold. But pretty much if they add a couple of percentage points onto their vote share, then they start really benefiting benefiting from first past the post. Mm. So they're, they're not going to support it. And in fact, um, Tim Farron uh, yesterday in Parliament spoke for the need for electoral reform and there was much groaning from the Labour ranks. So uh, don't expect it any time soon there probably won't be a coalition with the Lib Dems Uh, the DUP thing may fall apart so perhaps the Tories should have a leadership race replace Theresa May and then go to the country I mean this would be reckless beyond belief because we're in the middle of a two year article 50 negotiating process and this would be wasting even more time but the Conservatives were already reckless enough to trigger article 50 and then call a general election and waste a whole bunch of time so it might not be beyond them Mm. At the moment, everyone would say there's no way in hell the Tories would go into a general election against Jeremy Corbyn. I would argue that the Tories would actually have a good shot because this time around Corbyn is now credible to actually win, yeah. which means some of the scare stories about him might actually land a mm. bit. But more importantly, the Tories won't campaign on a manifesto that they intend to implement. Theresa May assumed she was going to win and win big. So uh, Mm -hmm. she fudged an awful lot of her manifesto. There was no costings whatsoever because she thought she she didn't need to. But the actual policies were ones that she intended to implement. Yeah, they they were like the least attractive Tory policies, even to Tories. Yeah. Yeah. It it was less an advertisement, less a a sales Mm. thing, and more of a death sentence. (laughs) yeah exactly more like a bill it, yeah. it didn't it, it 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 felt like well this is what we're gonna have to do yeah this is what we we, we want to do it yeah. didn't feel like it was it was um pandering to anyone at yeah. all you know sometimes i feel like all all parties pander too yeah. much because obviously they, they've got to compete and so they don't they uh, bribe a lot with these yeah. with these manifestos and often don't implement these these things and often portray the people who voted for them because they're literally impossible to implement, and and yeah, yeah, this is what this was a time when the Tories didn't do that, and actually did a pretty <laughs> nasty. Like some of the things are like what, uh, which we went yeah. through. So they're not going to make that mistake again. I mean, mm. just imagine the next uh, Conservative um, manifesto is going to be chock full of tax cuts and yeah, you know, uh, spending pledges for you know protecting pensions. Or you know, it's it's going to be a, a huge giveaway for. Swing voters and their base. Well, they wouldn't be much point in sweetening the deal for the older generation. They still voted uh, like 69% or was it 71% Tory. 
That's yeah. not the that's not the area. The area they lost heavily was the 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 thirties yeah. and forties. True. So they'd probably have lots of stuff in their manifesto for working families. Yes, exactly. They'd have stuff in in the manifesto for working families. I'd argue the thirties forties bracket were uh, the bracket most concerned about the dementia tax as well mm. because they would have yes because it's their parents', parents places. <laughs> <laughs> so so yeah, maybe the Tories um, wouldn't struggle quite so bad in another election would they do it with may though no uh they will not go into another election with Theresa may which if people could see us recording this podcast both of us are grinning a lot right now <laughs> <laughs> i'm i'm of the belief that pretty much almost anyone in the tory party is better than Theresa may in terms of being an actual prime minister yeah it's it was interesting how she seemed like such a politically canny operator inside of the houses of parliament but you yeah. put her outside of the House of Parliament and it looks like you've pulled up a, a fish and just flopped yeah. it onto the onto yeah. a London street. Yeah. And it's just bobbing there, gaping, with big bulging eyes, looking very scared and confused. But also, for so long, we were watching Theresa May make speeches and announcements and we just couldn't get why everyone else liked her so much. Right. Because, you know, you know, we were paying more attention than most, probably. Right. I mean, and so... We were witnessing what Theresa May was like. We're like, well, why she? Why, why do people see this speech and think this is strong and stable government? Mm. You know, this this seems like just an opportunist spouting slogans. Yes. Uh, well, fortunately, once exposed to the general public more, everyone started thinking that. So that's reassuring. Mm. So the Conservatives will not stick with Theresa May. Um, her time is very strictly limited. If we weren't in a in a Brexit negotiation, she'd have been gone already. Yes. But. It means that the next leader the Tories go for, they'll be thinking about who can beat Jeremy Corbyn. And so there's one obvious choice. Uh, I would nut- say there's but, but, two oh, obvious okay. choices. Go on, go on. Yeah. The first is Boris Johnson, right? Ugh, yes, I knew you were going to say so that. So they're, they're going to say that um, only a populist can beat a populist. Mm-hmm. They need someone. Apparently, uh, the Labour Party aren't concerned about Boris Johnson. Momentum, which have now become the driving engine within the Labour Party, they're they're very keen for it to be Boris Johnson, probably because they've got so many memes ready to go uh, that they've, yes. they've created. I, the, the biggest threat, which actually is, is the most difficult path for the Conservatives to take, would be Ruth Davidson. Mm. I think she'd be a much bigger threat to Jeremy Corbyn. Um, she's, you know, very much a progressive, very, very liberal on the conservative spectrum. Um, she would give a, an addition. Her as leader would give an additional huge boost to the Scottish Conservatives. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that would be the the safe choice. She's a soft Brexiteer. Yes, I was going to say. Um, in fact, she can campaign to remain. That's what I thought. But she's she's not actually in the Commons at the moment. So uh, isn't she? No, no. She didn't win a seat. She didn't run for a seat. What? I believe she's an MSP. So she would need to get a Westminster seat. Oh, of course. And she can't run for both. And no. so she ran for the Scottish Parliament. Yeah, she's in there. Yeah. So, so they need a snap by-election need... somewhere. They need someone yeah. to stand down. Yeah, they need, they need a, a by-election that she can win and then run for leadership. So. But she, she can do that because she has Scottish members of parliament on her side who'd be willing to step down and then she could run in their place um that is true but that would kind of be showing her cards too early and there will always be enemies within the conservative party want to scupper it and as we've seen from british politics if you look too arrogant about your end destination 
the British public or voters in general are going to deny it to you. Yes. It, it's it's a kind of drag factor on political movement, isn't it? Mm. That if you try to get there too fast... Mm. It's like the, the, the crown sits upon a table and the far harder you try to push towards it, the more resistance you feel. So the only way is to move yeah. slowly, slowly towards yeah. it and then finally grab it. Yeah. Jeremy Corbyn's case, we've been there <laughs> over 40 years. So uh, really, really slowly. I mean, the best strategy for Jeremy Corbyn right now is to trash his polls again so he goes back down to 20 and tricks the Tories into another general election. <laughs> then he can, and then he can be, you know, a good campaigner again. One does wonder, you know, if, if only he had campaigned like he did in the general election in the European referendum, mm. uh, we, we probably wouldn't have, uh, we wouldn't be where we are now. Ugh. But I suppose he quite likes where we are now. So mm. it kind of vindicates his choices yeah. if, you're, if you're Jeremy Corbyn. Um, just to round off everything, both what we what we saw in in the vote shares that we just had was both of the traditional main parties surge in support. Uh, I believe it, it was Conservatives around forty four percent, Labour around forty percent, and you saw all the smaller parties get squeezed. Yeah, the Lib Dems went down a little, UKIP were decimated, and the Greens were squeezed to one point something percent. Which makes me feel really bad for the Greens because they supported so passionately the idea of a progressive alliance. Mm. But the tragedy of a progressive alliance is that no, the smaller parties don't get any credit for their voters supporting the larger parties. Mm -hmm. It just gets immediately interpreted as if that larger party did really well and yes. the smaller party did really badly. So there's, there's no reward for progressive alliances, unfortunately. Other than actually getting the job getting your other than getting the supposed job done it yeah. does it does depend upon yeah what your end goal is as we discussed when looking at uh, progressive alliances it does depend upon what your end goal is yeah. as whether it's worthwhile um so what was yeah resurgence of the two party system and those two parties becoming even more polarized which of course fuels the need to uh, embrace a two party system when you fear your opponent more Yes. You're more likely to vote for the one party that you think can stop them. Very much so. Uh, uh, very much why we have a two-party system. Yeah. And and I met um, a Labour-supporting uh, friend recently, and I congratulated them on their campaign in Croydon, uh, where they managed to oust the Conservative there. It was mm. a marginal seat. Massive swing to Labour. Booted him out. And he, he, he uh, said, oh, but this is great now. There's actual proper choice within our electoral system. Uh, whereas before the parties were too similar and, and this 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 is annoying because there's no real choice there. And I said, actually, what we have now is the opposite of choice. What is what is healthy for a political system is actually what we had before when you had several political parties with pretty minor differences. If you're looking at several parties and they're all very similar with, with, with small differences, you can then scrutinise those differences and finally tune your choice. Mm. Like the most healthy thing in the world is if you and I sat down and I said... Hi, Paul. Uh, how did you vote in the general election? I voted Labour and you said, oh, I thought about voting Labour. I quite liked their policy on health. But actually, I went with the Conservatives because of their policy on education. Right. Like, that is proper democracy. Yes. What we have now is not choice. It's tribalism. Because there's no way in hell you're going to really consider one party and then go, oh, no. Yeah. I'll vote for the other one because of their policy on some, some, such another. It's, I vote for this tribe out of fear the other tribe will take control. Yeah. And that is deeply unhealthy. So when, this reminds me of something. When I was 15, my CDT teacher 
at the time. I won't say his name. Uh, we we were coming up to which general election? No, it wasn't a general election. We were just talking about politics. I think we were just talking about elections or something. And I asked him what party he votes for, mm. and uh, he said, uh, "I always vote Labour." And I said, "No matter what." And he says, "Oh yes." And I said, "Like no matter what they'll say or do, you'll always vote Labour." And he said, "Yep," mm. without like a second mm. pause. And the kind of fifteen-year-old me was like. This guy's an idiot. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, what's the point in choosing a side, you know, and sticking with them no matter what? You, you, you may as well just given up on the whole process of democracy then mm. because there's no promise there to... You're not being represented. You're adopting their ideas. They're mm. not adopting yours. Yeah. You're, you're The only way of, cha- of, of actually changing a political party is by moving or voting against them mm. when... They stop. They stop uh, having policies that you're interested in. Mm. Um, you've you've got to be willing to leave them. But he he absolutely wasn't. I saw that tribalism as wrong. Even then, mm. it it made sense. Actually, it's funny because I I think I would have been more likely to step into that, that more tribalistic mind mm. if he hadn't have said that to me because mm. it opened it up to like just how an an adult can be so foolish. Mm. Yeah. When I've ever I've caught myself being particularly tribalistic, I've looked at that and thought, right, I'm going to try and step back and just stick to like how I think I would run it or what I think would work mm. and find the party that best matches my ideas. I mean, in an ideal world, we wouldn't have political parties. Mm. Um, you would have every different area would have kept people who campaigned on their principles and they would form coalitions of one. <laughs> Um, we have 600 people, um, sorry, you know, six, uh, 300 independents getting together to form a coalition. Yeah. Be a great idea. Yeah, lovely. I tell you, I'm pretty jealous of France right now. Um, yeah, they've they've managed to endorse Macron's new party. And Amazing. it looks like he's getting an overwhelming majority in Parliament. So he'll, he'll get an opportunity to implement his plans. Yeah. We'll so that's a, a rejection of tribalism there. Nationwide. New yeah. party. Incredible. Yeah. Absolutely incredible. Bravo, France. Da 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 Tech. This week I want to talk about a cryptocurrency called Ethereum. Hmm. Interesting. I'm I'm only familiar with Bitcoin. Kind of assumed that was the only one doing the rounds. Well, um, there's actually uh, 876 oh. uh, currently trading cryptocurrencies. Blimey. Uh, according to the website CoinMarketCap. But only, um, well, 91.5% of them are trading less than $1,000 every day. Right. So most are, are barely being used um, and barely have any value to them. Um, because it's it's open source software, because Bitcoin was created open source, it was very easy for people to take it, modify the code, add new features and spin up a new currency. But it didn't mean anyone was going to adopt it. And the only way it's actually valuable is if people mm. uh, create, mine it or use it and, and, and desire it mm. um, to be used for transactions. So most of them sit sit down there. And, and uh, none of them have been anywhere close to the popularity of Bitcoin. That was until now. This year, there's been a transformation, and it looks like Bitcoin may be about to become number two mm. in cryptocurrencies. But if Ethereum was just a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin, I probably wouldn't be doing a story about it this week. 
because I did a story about Bitcoin quite recently. Admittedly, it was about ransomware and how Bitcoin is used for ransomware and how that may be inflating its price. Um, but the Ethereum story is way more interesting than that because Ethereum is not just a cryptocurrency. Hmm. It is not just a way to digitally transfer funds between people. Do you remember before uh, Bitcoin became a thing? Because Bitcoin's still, it, it feels pretty old now to 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 those of us who've, who've been hearing about it since since quite early on. Obviously, it was kind of started being written in, in 2010 and really became noteworthy as a functional thing about 2012. But before that, we had BitTorrent. Mm-hmm. And some of the distribution techniques and, and uh, peer-to-peer networking techniques of BitTorrent were fundamental to the networking concepts in, in Bitcoin. Well, Ethereum takes the concepts of Bitcoin and makes another giant leap forward. It's not just a, a a way of digitally transferring value. It's a platform for building decentralized applications or dApps. Okay. As well as being cryptocurrency, dApps are a way of doing work, actual useful things. You remember I've spoken before about Bitcoin and the fact that it, it's, its value is created by doing work. In this case, it, it, it's doing complicated mathematical um, algorithms that builds up value uh, because it must take some computing power to to do this work so you can kind of you've you're able to prove that you've done work and therefore you you are eligible to discover some some coins and that's called mining and that's how the the actual coins are created and that that coin creation peters off over time till eventually there's only um 21 million bitcoins in circulation and that's it Hmm. that's going to be all the bitcoins i'll ever be hmm. well ethereum tried to do things radically differently because rather than doing make work because that that computer hashing is, is isn't useful to anyone it, it's just a way of proving that you spent electricity hmm. <laughs> and generated heat for <laughs> doing nothing it just proves you put some time and effort into doing something and therefore you, you you're eligible um for winning some coins when you do it um this is trying to do useful things things that other people want done in exchange for coins hmm. you can see how there's a balance there between running decent a decentralized application is any software which can be broken up into loads of small parts and then run on different computers and then those results are all fed in to each other so you you're able to um to use the power of thousands and millions of computers rather than one to solve problems. And we, we've seen this for, for decades. Um, early on, uh, SETI and um, uh, with a search for extraterrestrial intelligence created a program that could be run on multiple people's computers. And they just asked people to install it and it would use CPU time that you weren't hmm. working. So when your computer was idle, it would number crunch um, signals from space to see if it could find uh, alien, alien uh, signals. So it would process radio waves from space and see if it could find alien signals however that quick over time you know the need for these things became such that platforms were created to allow for less mass computing so everyone didn't have to write it from scratch but there's still very little incentive it's just for the good and so it was only stuff that had a, a public good that saw any success so uh, another one was protein folding uh, I think to discover prion diseases or something like that. 
I, I believe some of those are sort of anti-cancer research that was done using mass computing. And those are, you know, for the public goods, people have a reason to install them on their computers. Mm. Um, remember, this, this, this is, there's other types of, of uh, crowd problem solving which use human beings, but we're not talking about that. We're just talking about renting your CPU time or giving out your CPU time on your computer for free in exchange for, for, for nothing. Mm. Well, what about using the same power but doing it for money? Well, it was far too complex to do that in the past, and because the money and money you'd earn would be so tiny. But here we have a really powerful general purpose solution, and the currency is built in to the mechanism of control. So this is entirely decentralized. The the network runs just like Bitcoin, entirely decentralized. However, the the primary software can be re-released with major updates. So um, although other people can make software because it's all open source, there is still primary software and there is the idea that um, it can be moved forward and they can add new features in and they have a timeline and rapidly in development of this. Ethereum was created in July 2015 um, and then had a proper production release in March 2016. So it's very young. That's what's so incredible is is it's really started to bloom. It was created by a Russian-born Canadian called uh, Vitalik Buterin. Did I mention he's only twenty-three? <laughs> yeah, he's twenty-three now. Mm, my, uh, he he does look like a genius. He was very interested in Bitcoin initially, and he wrote he he kind of co-created a Bitcoin magazine and was very involved in the Bitcoin community. And he had these ideas, but realized they were never going to be adopted by Bitcoin which has been fairly stagnant in terms of adopting new new principles. Yeah, its founder, uh, Satoshi, disappeared. And so since then, it's been run by other contributors and they've let it stagnate to a certain degree. And it's been experiencing a lot of transaction problems, it's been getting more expensive to do transactions on the Bitcoin network. It's become problematic to get transactions processed for low fees. And there's been a, just a general slowing of the of the movement of bitcoin it's it's getting problematic to use and it's not really addressing these problems they're meant to be addressing these problems and they're doing it very slowly and very poorly and they're creating a lot of antagonism within their own community meanwhile ethereum is getting insane backing hmm. um just to show you how just to say how close these two cryptocurrencies are how are they close they're reaching parity or how close ethereum is to reaching parity with bitcoin the current market capitalization, the total value based on the... If if everyone was able to sell all their Bitcoin mm. for the current going rate, that's the current Bitcoin capitalization, is $44.7 billion. Mm. Ethereum's capitalization is $35 billion. Wow. So very close. Now, if you were to look at the market price of one Bitcoin versus one Ethereum, you'd, you'd be like, oh, wait, hold on. Bitcoin price is $2,800, whereas the current price of Ethereum coins are only like 300 But remember, there's far more Ethereum coins right. than there are Bitcoins. There's actually 92 million Ethereum coins. Um, there's only ever going to be 21 million Bitcoins in total, hmm. and we're not even close to, to that yet. So so yes, there's, there's far more Ethereum coins, okay. um, which means the price will always be lower. Hmm. However... What's important is how much it trades and what the volume is in, in trade and how much that trade is worth. And they're 
they're just reaching parity. So Bitcoin is trading about $1.8 million of Bitcoin every day is being moved around. And about the same amount just under in Ethereum. And this has all happened this year. Wow. This huge boost. It's grown by 5,000% wow. this year. And the whole point is that this isn't just a cryptocurrency. It gets work done. It does things. There, it's, an, it's a platform that anyone can create apps for and release them. So I've been amazed at some of the ideas that are coming out of what kind of apps you can run on a distributed application platform um, where the payment system is integrated and the, 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 the adoption is wide into a network. This is this is a bigger revolution as web browsers were for the internet. Hmm. One example is Flance, and it's a freelance hiring platform where people can give micro jobs to other people and pay them in Ether. Mm-hmm. And the whole platform runs in the Ethereum network. Hmm. It doesn't require another website. It doesn't require you to create... Uh, it doesn't require them to pay anything. And so it has no fees. Hmm. So the entire platform runs for free and it's it's paid for in, in the usage of it. Okay. It's really uh, it's really strange. But but when people use it, they pay a little that goes into the transaction fees of the people who run Ethereum nodes. So it's just like mining. The the people hmm. who run the Ethereum nodes, which anyone can do, they'll get the the payment for running part of this service. Okay. So it's a bit like, uh, think of a, a website like Twitter. Mm-hmm. They have big problems making money. Twitter's yeah. really struggled to make money because they've got to pay for really expensive servers and that service has to be maintained and they've got all this bandwidth mm. and that all has to be paid for. And they don't really have a model mm. for making money. They, they've, they've tried to sell their data and stuff like that, which is possible, but their overheads are very high and so they, they hemorrhage cash. Well, there's a... So there's several attempts at creating social networks in Ethereum and they're paid for the, essentially by the users hmm. in very, very small amounts. And then that money is given to everyone who's running Ethereum nodes who essentially, uh, every Ethereum node which ends up running these, these computations hmm. and that they essentially get, get paid a little bit. So hmm. it goes from, so essentially the, the, the your ether yeah. that you have as a, a user you create an account right yep. and then when you go to sites and use services in ethereum your ether will go down by a little bit and then that goes into the hands of the people who are, uh whose machines are generating the code uh, sorry are running the code to run those services gotcha one of the funny things about the world wide web is there's never been a system for doing this properly mm. You've always, that's why it's always been reliant on a, on a, I pay a service provider to give me access to the internet, but everything on the internet's free unless I have to sign in and give a credit card. Mm-hmm. But the problem with it is credit cards don't do very, very tiny transactions. Mm. Like imagine email if there wasn't any spam because every, every email costs like one P yeah, yeah. that would kill spam. Yeah, that's what Ethereum enables. Ah. So the the social networks and stuff, the the it's essentially being transferred, but it's all kind of automatic. You barely need to to do anything. Gotcha. And um, due due to the the tiny amount of computing power required per user, it's very cheap to 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 use. I mean, um, 
Uh, so there, yeah, there's like these example of these social networks and stuff. So we'll we'll see if they um, they go anywhere. But those aren't the only kind of apps that are being created. Banks are creating distributed applications hmm. to run inside of Ethereum, including ones that will create a separate secret blockchain. In other words, you can't see the transactions that are happening for real bank to bank transactions. Hmm. And Russia and China have been experimenting with creating decentralized applications for create uh, for creating digital versions of their own national currencies that they would be able to mint because you can create special tokens that only your process can mint those are unique and you have control of them so it's exactly what they're looking for but it runs across this distributed platform uh, so you're looking at both large banks and countries Thinking think about, well, we can use this as a platform for creating our own digital secure transfer of information and distributed ledger system. We don't have to make our own. And the great thing about it is it's funded by the network. The, the, anyone who needs to use this service is funding it. Mm-hmm. And that, that's, it's automatic. Mm. And the price of it is, is based on demand. Mm. If it's too expensive to use, you go somewhere else. And that, mm. that's absolutely genius. So it's it's you can see why it's far more than just a cryptocurrency. Hmm. Someone described it as the world's computer, and that's what this could really be. Hmm. It could be a computing platform for the world, where computation and and do it running a service is paid for in the cryptocurrency, hmm. and it's also a, a signing system. The, the The whole principle is there's actually two types of accounts in Ethereum. There's user accounts, which are called externally owned accounts, which you have a private key for, and that's those are your tokens. Uh, so your, your your private key is your gateway to spending those tokens. And if anyone stole that private key, they can take all your tokens, your Ether. And then there's contracts. And contracts are another type of account, which doesn't have a, a key, but it's uploaded to the network, and it is a bunch of code. Mm-hmm. And this contract, this, this code can be communicated with and you kind of pay to communicate with it mm. and it runs and the person who runs it receives that that money and it, um and they use this actual sub currency called gas which actually runs these contracts um it's a little like um ether is the big stuff and and gas is okay. this this smaller the smaller stuff that runs the services but the the point is that code now is a living entity like in the network it's immutable um it's i think you have to destroy it or i'm trying to remember how you if you can change it once you've created it so this whole idea they've got uh of creating distributed autonomous organizations so actually like living companies that are made of code they're able to communicate with other living companies made of Mm. code it's something that, that's been predicted by science fiction authors for a while, mm. but now there's an actual platform to do it. Mm. Uh, they, they actually tried to make the, the first distributed autonomous organization on the Ethereum, which launched on their proper production release in March 2016, went fantastically wrong mm. when due to a, they found someone discovered a code exploit in the contract mm. that's running on the network and were able to leverage that to steal 51 million ether which was at the time like most of the ether (laughs) gosh (laughs) and do you know what they did because in in, when stuff happens in bitcoin it's like oh tough luck Mm -hmm. right do you know what the people who run ethereum did 
they rewrote the code for the entire Ethereum network and changed the blockchain to undo that transaction. And it was so controversial because hardcore proponents of cryptocurrencies are like, no one should be allowed Mm. to mess with the blockchain. The blockchain is permanent and it's real. Mm. Like it should be outside of anyone's control. But if you write the software and everyone's running your software and everyone who writes the software agrees, you can modify the software and essentially change something. And that's what they've done. And they've done it three times. They're willing to totally, because they know the software is still in development. And they're saying like, look, we want this to work. Mm. And they've actually reduced uh, internal spam, denial of service attacks. And they're actually making it work by being rapid Mm. and changing it and be willing to to say, well, as long as we've got control of this code and while we're still considering this in development. And one of the things that uh, they, and they they are really willing to say, like, we are creating something new here. Don't put all your money into it. And they, when you download the application, it asks you to sign a multi-page disclaimer. It's like five pages long. And it's like no disclaimer I've ever read before. And let me just read you a little bit. So it's got this huge warning. Firstly, security warning saying like if your computer is compromised and someone gets your private key, you can lose all your coins. So that's all pretty obvious stuff. Mm-hmm. But also it goes into huge disclaimers about things that could go wrong with Ethereum that could cause all the coins to lose their market value. Right. And it lists 10 reasons why ethereum could fail and rapidly lose value (laughs) should give me an example yeah so it's got some of the more uh obvious ones like we've seen with bitcoin in the past like uh, regulatory action Mm. so if countries ban it Mm. or make it a a criminal then there's nothing they can do about it and they're warning you that this could be criminalized and therefore you would your the value would drop dramatically there's a risk of alternatives because it's an open source platform someone else could create another ethereum network using the same software that's fair enough. It mm. might lose value. Risk of insufficient interest. <laughs> <laughs> but the ones down the bottom are where it gets really interesting because rather than being about the, the network failing, it's about it being too popular. Hmm. Risk of rapid adoption and insufficiency of computational applicational processing power on Ethereum platform. Hmm. And also risk of rapid adoption and increased demand. If it grows too fast, they're saying it may become a bubble and destabilize and then lose value. Um, And also it may become too expensive to operate your services on Ethereum. So basically this is one of the reasons why people need to run the computational side. People need to run the the nodes Mm -hmm. and you can make money running the nodes, but the point is people need to run the nodes. And that's the funny thing is if you run the nodes and use the nodes, you'll break even. In fact, you'll probably make a little bit more. Yeah. You're, you're exchanging computing power for computing power. So your, it's like your internet services that you're using are being paid for by other people. Sorry, are being yeah, well, supplied it's... by other people and you're running some services which are being used by other people. Yes. I mean, it's actually amazingly democratic because not only do, do services which are being used get funded to be run, mm-hmm. um, and <laughs> but... Currently, a huge amount of the world's energy is being spent running data centers. Mm. And we can actually distribute that amongst normal people mm. and potentially cut costs. Um, because we're, rather than making two computers and having each computer run occasionally, mm. you're utilizing all the extra CPU power of people's computers that aren't being used all the time. Brilliant. Like having a driverless car that goes around constantly picking people up and dropping them off. Exactly. 
it's like it's like what Tesla's proposing to do with their vehicles in the future mm. is is you can put them onto the market when you're not using them, mm. and they'll go and drive around, drop people off, and come back home to you, which is a really weird thought. Yeah. Um, See, there's always a way of bringing driverless cars into our conversation on Thursday, <laughs> then Paul. <laughs> Um, um, so it's great. So um, uh, can our listeners just get online and get involved? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've just it, it takes a while to download the blockchain. Uh-huh. Um, so expect to use an awful lot of your your you'll have to download. I think it's like twenty or thirty gig um, to to get the whole blockchain. Yeah. Um, there's two different applications, um, but the main one yeah, I'd recommend our users to get to start is the standard Mist browser. It's got a friendly windows interface and you can use the services that's the kind of thing think of it as like chrome okay you can actually get a browser extension that becomes like mist um so it's mist is like a browser for the blockchain ethereum Mm -hmm. whereas a browser uses the world wide web and communicates on http this is a tiny separate protocol but it runs the same kind of stuff It, it can display web pages but the web pages are actually stored and being served up to you on the ethereum network Hmm. And this is this could be a huge change to how we do the internet, hmm. um, and all this this it in in many ways we might just end up seeing data centers that just run Ethereum nodes, hmm. and then whatever services people are using are paid for, uh, and might help stop us have this whole rather you know if, for those of us that are fed up with our data and us being the product. Yeah, yeah. Ethereum is the solution. And now, in a slight variation on our regular sometime segment, who's going to take down Theresa May this week? Hey, <laughs> genius. Oh, well, it's perfect. You're saying how they swapped roles. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. She's oh, taken. Yeah. It's like he's given her the little ba- paper curse that he received. <laughs> yeah. uh, he somehow slipped a little piece of paper into a, into a folder she was carrying or something, and, yeah. and now she's got the curse. Yeah, yeah. Those who argued that there was a constant media conspiracy against Jeremy Corbyn, just look at the newspapers from last weekend and what they were saying about Theresa May. Yeah. Pretty damning against everyone. Because if if there was a conspiracy amongst all the mainstream media, then they would have spun this, Labour didn't win. In fact, uh, historically, Labour did pretty badly. Yeah. And they could have just emphasised that, whereas no, damning, absolutely everywhere, about how absolutely appalling Theresa May was. All sorts of candidates to take her down. Probably angry farmers, though, after her wheat comments. <laughs> the fields of wheat. Running through fields of wheat. I don't think the farmers were very happy with it. Fields of wheat is a euphemism for freebasing, right? Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, good. topics of the week please visit aidgrant.com or follow us on twitter at paul underscore hayes or aid underscore grant